Welcome to the Ethics Experts, where we're elevating ethics and compliance and HR to the strategic level it's supposed to be. Hey, hey, this is the Ethics Experts. If it's your first time joining us, welcome. And if you are a returning subscriber, hey, friend, hope you're having an amazing day. You see what happens when you subscribe to the Ethics Experts? You get a bonus greeting on every single episode. So hit that subscribe button as we join forces and change the world by making our workplaces better. I'm here with Scott Schools. He is the Chief Ethics and Compliance Officer at Uber, uh, has a really interesting background in history, and uh, super excited to get you on and pick your brain about everything ethics and compliance. How's it going, Scott? It's going great. Thanks. Uh, nice to be here. Thanks for the uh, opportunity. Yeah, we had a little uh, a little hiccup on the front end. Uh, some, some of our tech wasn't working, and I was in a slight panic. So now the blood pressure is falling back down to normal, and now we can just <laughs> uh, have a little conversation here. So... <clears throat> Scott, you have a really cool background. Um, you worked uh, as assisti- as uh, assistant um, deputy AG for a while. Then you worked in private practice for a while, I think. And then now you've landed at Uber. So you have a lot of great experience that I think our listeners who are really, you know, largely ethics and compliance and human resource folks who are trying to make their workplaces better. Um, you've you, you got a lot of cool perspectives to share. So um, why don't we start with this question, which I love. Um how did you, I love this. I, everybody has such like a whining story on how they got into ethics and compliance. How did you go from being a young kid playing outside, you know what I'm saying? Playing baseball probably, uh, into now, you know, running ethics and compliance for, for one of the most, you know, popular companies in the world. Yeah, I would probably say the answer to that question is like a lot of people largely accidental and some of it dumb luck. I think I was, uh, I, I started my career as a lawyer, as a prosecutor and was, did, did that for a while and loved it. Um, Stayed mostly with the Department of Justice for the early part of my career, left in 2013, went into private practice for a while. Um, In 2016, got asked to come back to the Department of Justice uh, to work in a role there with the Deputy Attorney General Office. Deputy Attorney General is essentially an ethics advisor for the Attorney General and the Deputy Attorney General in a career position in an otherwise political office. So it was a, a role that had been held by a, a longtime department employee who had been there over 50 years, a, a dear friend of mine, but he passed away and I went to fill that role. Um, I was there a couple of years and got a phone call uh, out of the blue from a friend of mine and, who said that Tony West, who is our chief legal officer, was looking for a compliance, a chief compliance officer at Uber and did I have any interest. So totally out of the blue, not something I had even thought about, to be honest. And uh it was one of those opportunities that I thought, you know, I, I'm, I'm happy where I am. But then I, I think because of the, the sort of opportunity to round out a career that was in government and private practice, but never in business, and then to have a chance to do that at a company like Uber that was iconic and, and uh, I think super interesting and yeah. growing fast and had a lot of really interesting <clears throat> background just ended up being an opportunity I felt like I, I couldn't say no to. And I've been here about four and a half years. So when you came back to the DOJ in that, um, in that, it was, what did you call it? Ethics advisor? Yep. Yeah. And so, I mean, that, that sounds like a pretty cool role that I'd love to hear some more about, but I mean, it sounds like, you know, given the way you just characterized that, that you kind of probably saw yourself to be, you know, being there for, for a bit. Absolutely. When I took that job, I probably envisioned that I would retire from that job. Okay. Um, so I really had no notion that I would that I would leave it. And it it's it was a fascinating job. It's one of those one of those roles where you you get to uh, engage on topics at the Department of Justice that are some of the most important and difficult and yeah. and uh, 
hairy problems that the Department of Justice face. It was fascinating, hard, and stressful, but but I really enjoyed it and I love the department, but uh, ultimately just decided that this was an opportunity I couldn't pass up. So what what was it aside from it being an iconic brand that caused you to jump ship from a really cool, interesting, phenomenal position at sort of this, you know, apex type like regulatory body that so many ethics and compliance folks have to, you know, understand and work for, so to speak. What, what were those things that, that, that made it exciting enough or potentially exciting enough for you to, you know, make that leap? Yeah, well, Uber was at an interesting place in its culture. Uh, Dara Kasrashawi was a fairly new CEO. He had started uh, probably about six, seven months prior to me getting that first call. There had been Travis Kalanick had been the prior CEO and he had left. Um, I had talked to Tony West, who was our chief legal officer at the time and still is. And he told me that Uber was on sort of a culture journey where they were trying to address some issues that the company had had and, and uh, was moving. The, they were moving together. The leadership team was moving the, the company in a different direction and that I could be a big part of that. And it just seemed like a really, really cool challenge and one that would I would both learn from and have impact in. And it would be a great opportunity. And it's been a blast. Um, you know, it seems like we're step, you know, I don't know. I'm kind of new to this whole thing. I, I, I haven't been in this industry since the nineties when it seemed to have like really kind of kicked off. It seems like we're talking about culture more and more these days. It seems like more and more light bulbs are turning on, uh, within organizations for the transformative effect that culture can play on, you know, the overall integrity of the organization and then the positive externalities that come from that. Um, as you, you know, so obviously you got, you got that, get that and have probably, ha you know, got that for a while. But when you came into, um, into this company that, as you said, had some challenges, I mean, it's a massive company. You have a very interesting, um, you know, you have a very interesting footprint and your business model is very interesting. What's, you know, I'm sure you knew that like turning that sort of cultural ship was going to be difficult, but like what was surprising along the way, um, like what seemed to be harder than you thought? What seemed to be easier than you thought in terms of driving like true authentic cultural change in, in this kind of a company? Yeah, great question. I think the, the challenge, the biggest challenge is scale. Um, Uber at that point was operating already all across the globe. Um, the, the company had been built sort of very locally. So even though right. it's a global company, the business, the business in, for example, in Seattle would have been built by a very localized team. So very kind of widespread organization and the, the challenge of changing a culture in an organization like that, that's not very kind of centralized is I think even harder. And so as, and as over time, right. the company's become probably more centralized. So getting messages out and a consistent um, leadership message has become easier. And I think we've, we've done a really good job of that. But I think at the time, the, the geographic spread and, and the sort of the footprint of the company, which had grown up very locally and, and with various local operating models and cultures, et cetera, made it a bigger challenge. Um, you know, Uber is one of those, you know, I don't know, not the first, but definitely like a super famous unicorn. And I think what a lot of people don't recognize is that there's, you know, something that came as like a, a fast growing startup many times uh, you know, can get very big and still have that kind of startup feel, that kind of figure it out, get it done type of mentality. And hey, you know, we're going to kind of, you know, 
not not every company that is as big as GE is a GE. You know, GE is like to me the the picture of like super dialed in, processes everywhere, very consistent, um, and so forth. Were you surprised by anything like this uh, at at this company, and what opportunities did that sort of present for you in terms of you know creating those points of leverage for messaging or like cultural change or something like that? I think the the best part of the opportunity in some ways in terms of the challenge we face on the on the compliance and ethics side was that our leadership was committed to change. And so because we had a very solid mm-hmm. message at the top in terms of what was being expected, Dara had come in and, and created new company values that included do the right thing period as one of the values. He'd been out in the public talking about that, right. discussing the, the change that the company was going to try to undergo. So I think it, it provided a platform where you have the ability to talk to folks about culture change in the language of the CEO who had already talked to the company about culture change. And I think it was it, it enabled the, the team and the, uh, the whole organization to move in a direction more quickly because the, the tone from the top was so consistent. Yeah, that's a, um, I mean, it's so critical and, you know, there's almost sort of three flavors of it. Of course, it's like a full sort of spectrum, but, you know, sort of silence, you know, kind of ambivalence or like that full endorsement, which is what you're talking about. I would imagine that that last one I mentioned is probably like exponentially different to exist in than that sort of middle ground ambivalence. Uh, we had a um, we had a talk the other day, a webinar with uh, J.S. Nelson, who wrote this cool book, a Business Ethics, Everything You Need to Know. Uh, she's a Harvard law professor. And um, there were so many people in our chat of, you know, ethics and compliance officers and mid-sized companies that, you know, you could just tell by the nature of their questions that like they didn't have, (laughs) they didn't have that kind of like CEO endorsement. And many times folks are trying to like make ends meet and, you know, they know what the right thing to do is. They know, man, we really have to push these values forward. But sometimes it's like that lone voice crying out in the wilderness that no one's, you know, listening to. Um, Yeah, it's just, uh, I mean, what would you tell somebody in that kind of a, a position? Is it, hey, you know, do what you can from a grassroots standpoint or like guerrilla ethics? Uh, that's a book title, by the way, I just thought of. Uh, guerrilla ethics. Um, or would it be, hey, let's try to activate the CEO and sort of persuade them uh, about the positive externalities at a more, you know, authentically, um, you know, honest or a culture built on true integrity is going to provide to the things you care about CEO, which are maybe the bottom line or, you know, more cash or, or whatever. How would you kind of navigate that if you were in this type of position I'm talking about? Yeah, I think uh, it's very hard to build a culture from the bottom up. I think in a company, the reason that the Department of Justice and others who are evaluating compliance programs in the context of a, something having gone wrong we're going to look at the tone from the top at your company is because if the tone from the top is not consistent and is not consistent with the message that you as a compliance officer are trying to spread within your company, it's going to be super challenging. And I think from from my perspective, when I was contemplating the Uber uh, opportunity, um, I had an opportunity to meet with leadership and to sort of test drive whether they're um, commitment to culture change was serious or not. And, and that was a big factor for me in deciding, is this a challenge I want to take on? Am I going to have top cover or am I going to be a voice in the wilderness trying to change a culture that our leadership actually is quite comfortable with? And obviously I, I determined the former, so made the leap, but I think it's super hard to, especially if, if, if you don't even have like 
I mean, you could have sort of your CEO and your and your very top leadership doesn't have the tone that you or doesn't want to talk about culture, but you've got sort of second line leaders who are doing that. So you've got some top cover. I think you have a chance. But uh, if 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 folks were to tell me as a potential chief ethics and compliance officer, I want you to come in and change our culture and we don't want to we don't want any role in it. <laughs> then uh, I don't, I'm not sure there is a path to success in that environment. Yeah, you're probably right. I mean, kids aren't, aren't going to raise themselves, right? Um, <laughs> That's right. <laughs> you need to get that sort of oversight to get the, uh, the reinforcement. And then, you know, assuming that it's authentic, there's going to be the budget that comes along with it or the willingness to hop onto a town hall or give a message, you know, to help, you know, reinforce those things. Um, it's really nuts in a, in, in a way, um, like to me, the, this whole culture thing is like so apparent, you know, and um, it's it's apparent as like in terms of like that's the lever to pull. That is how you're going to actually make your workplace better. And if you're doing that, all those other things that the, you know, Wall Street analysts care about, that the, you know, um, the shareholders care about are going to happen in a sustainable way. But I'm just, I continue to be, you know, surprised by um, the disparity uh, across leadership, across companies in our economy that don't seem to, that maybe pay at lip service. Like, it seems like, it still seems like there's a sort of a, a minority of folks that are fully bought into this thing that, you know, you and I are talking about today. What do you think that is? And why do you think it's taking so long? And what do you think it's going to take to change it? I think, um, I'm not sure I have a, a you know, perfect, in, the perfect set of information to answer the question with full knowledge, but I'll give you my, my gut is, is that folks don't haven't yet connected the dots always between culture and financial success. And they, they companies that have succeeded with a bad culture may think they can continue to see with a, right. succeed with a bad culture. And why do I, why do I want to spend a m- bunch of money for a bunch of compliance people who can come in and not improve my bottom line. In fact, maybe impair my bottom line without any uh, tangible benefit that I can at the end of the year show my shareholders we spent we hired five people to do compliance and our and our net profits went up X amount. They're not right. connected in that way. It's not that direct. So I think that there's probably sometimes skepticism about whether or not the culture change will actually affect the bottom line or not. Um, whereas I think if you look at, I've seen plenty of surveys that will show world's most ethical companies that, that how they compare to companies that are not on that list or that are not uh, walking the walk on the culture and ethics side um, just don't perform as well. I, I, I kind of like to analogize it to sports teams and especially college sports teams who change personnel entirely over four years, but they, their culture persists over decades. And the ones who have good cultures succeed and the ones who don't have good cultures don't succeed. And you change the personnel over and over, but it's the same thing. And I think that it's a, I, I think it's a, a fairly close analogy to what happens at companies. The companies with good cultures are going to succeed over time. The companies with bad cultures may have short-term success or limited success, but it's not sustainable, um, I don't think, for the long term. That's such a great analogy. Um, that college sports analogy is really phenomenal because uh, it's true. It's like if this is the way that we do things, it doesn't matter sort of who's in the seats because they're going to continue to do those things that, that way. That sort of supersedes the person in the seat. And um, the ones that sort of are a little bit more, you know, volatile in terms of like successful years and unsuccessful years, it's usually tied down to 
a certain coach or a certain, you know, player that maybe is just so, you know, phenomenal, they can just have that impact, but it can't, to your point, sustain forward. It's a really phenomenal analogy. So just so you know, when you, if you ever hear me use that, there's an implied <laughs> like citation to you. Cause that was a good one. Okay. No worries. <laughs> <laughs> so you came from the DOJ, you went to private practice, you went back to the DOJ. How did your, um, I want to kind of, you know, kind of go back a little bit. Um, how did your, uh, involvement in that organization or in that department change between those two stints there? So when I was, <clears throat> excuse me, when I was there earlier, when I left in 2013, I was sort of in an understudy role to the guy whose, whose job I actually ended up replacing when I went back in 16. So I had been a, a line prosecutor, a supervisor in U.S. Attorney's Office. I've been the U.S. Attorney in South Carolina and San Francisco. And then when I went back to Washington in 2008, I was really sort of in an understudy position for a guy named David Margolis, who was became my mentor and was kind of known as the Yoda of the Department of Justice. Yeah. He's been there 50 years. He's who everybody went to when they had something really sticky. I worked very closely with him in anticipation of replacing him at some point. Um, after about five years of that, he didn't show any signs that he was going anywhere. <laughs> I, was, I was feeling a little underutilized in an in a understudy role. And so I went into private practice for a while. Um, and then he passed away in 2016. And that's when I went back to do that role. But at that point, I was sort of the point person for all of those hard issues that he had been handling as opposed to being sort of his understudy. So I think for a lot of people, the DOJ is this big sort of like monolithic, uh, scary uh, place. You lived on the inside in this, you know, for lack of a better term, this, you know, I don't know, you know, Yoda, Yoda training ground. I'm just kidding. But like. Um, you know, you're, you were almost like a, like a task force or something, right? It sounds like sticky issues were brought to, um, to, you know, your area. What were some of those things? What did that stuff look like? And how did that end up rooting down into, you know, ethics? Like, what did you learn along the way? What were some of those, uh, those battles you fought or whatever that ended up equipping you to like really grow into who you are right now? So I, I, I'm going to have to answer that question kind of generally because I can't talk too much about a lot of, of specifics. Yeah, yeah. But generally, when when difficult cases or difficult issues confronted the department, whether it was whether an attorney general needed to recuse him or herself from a particular matter, whether there were um, issues involved in a case about how we would resolve the case, whether there were financial conflicts that came up with senior officials of the department, you know, whatever the issue was. Um, they, the, they would refer to that role as the senior department career officials. So the attorney general's office and the deputy attorney general's office, the two top officials at justice are primarily staffed with political appointees. Mm -hmm. So at the leadership level, they wanted to have someone who's in a career position who can I provide see. the institutional perspective when the department is making hard decisions about difficult cases. Gotcha. So that gives, um, it's just by the nature of the position, it sort of insulates it from the political wins. It's not, you know, up for reelection or whatever, or reappointment, whatever it might be. Um, and you can maintain that sort of like you, uh, that, that institutional continuity where we're building on the things that we've learned. We can remain consistent in how we handle, you know, this case relative to the last case that was sort of similar to it, something like that. That's exactly right. So I, I was fortunate enough to be there through two presidential transitions when there was oh, cool. a party change. So on 
January 19th, I would go to work with one group of people. And on January 21st, I would show up and it'd be a whole new group there. So what was that like? It was, uh, it was fascinating, a little intimidating. I mean, I yeah. think it, it was, you know, you don't really know. You got a whole new set of colleagues and they don't know you and you don't know them so much. But uh, one of the great things about working there at that level, especially is in, and in the department generally, the quality of talent is really ex extreme. Like mm. we meet some people who just are super, super talented. And it's uh, it's a real joy to work there uh, in part because of the, the, the level of your of, of talent with the colleagues who work there. It's just a it's a, always an impressive group of people. Yeah, it's um, when you're surrounded by those kinds of people, it is, you know, when you're on a team of, you know, top performers, so to speak, in your field. I mean, there's so much growth. It's like hyper growth, right? You get, you learn so many tricks and so many perspectives and it's really a, um, it's really, I'm sure you look back on, you know, so many lessons you learned from there that you're carrying forward, you know, in your, in your current position. Um, right. But let's go back even a little further. This is going to be a Quentin Tarantino style uh, ethics uh, episode. Um, talk to me when you're back in law school, like how did you get from law school into the DOJ? You know, what was it about, you know, becoming a prosecutor that that was enticing to you, that um, attracted you? And um, how did that experience end up kind of pushing you toward this really cool role within the Department of Justice? So good question. I went to law school at the University of Texas, which is it, it back then and maybe still today. I don't know. But largely it kind of steers people into commercial tracks mm -hmm. somehow, whether you're going to be a commercial litigator or do transactions or do oil and gas, right. et cetera. Um, I just I wanted to be a litigator. I knew that much. Um, so when I finished school, I went to clerk for a federal judge in South Carolina. I went back home, which is where I'm from spent two years clerking for that judge. And during that time was really the first time that I even understood that there were, was such a thing as an assistant U.S. attorney and what they did. But because I was in the courtroom with the judge, I saw them a lot. I knew that they were in court. I became uh, knowledgeable about what they did. And I was sort of fascinated by that and by the fact that they were litigating in federal court, which is which is a great experience for litigators. Right. It's a great, you know, if it's it's the highest level it's of litigation, I think. Yeah. Yeah, it's the big leagues. And and uh so as I was concluding my two year clerkship, there was going to be a new US attorney. Um and he had by happenstance happened to have a bunch of new positions that he was able to fill as a result of some budget increases. I got introduced to him by my judge and then hired by him at that point. Oh, how cool. Um, and it really, I would say like that changed my life in the sense that I, it took me on a career path that I never really envisioned. But once I got on it, I, I loved it. I loved the, the white hat of the job. I loved being in court. Um, I loved all the working with FBI agents and DEA agents to make cases. It was a lot of fun. Uh, and super interesting and, and challenging and tried a lot of cases. And it was sort of exactly what I had hoped it would be. And then I think at some point, you know, I had moved up into management within the U.S. Attorney's Office in South Carolina. Um, there was going to be a new U.S. Attorney. And I had in 2004, <laughs> it was a long time ago, just tried two capital cases. So I'd been in court that year for about 14 weeks total, tried one case. It was six weeks, another that was eight weeks. And just thought, I need, I'm ready to go do something a little different. I reached out to a friend of mine who was in D.C. Um, she said, we need a general counsel at the executive office for U.S. attorneys, which is the sort of the management component of the department that 
provide services out to the U.S. Attorney's offices throughout the field. Um, the job wasn't really in my wheelhouse. It was like government ethics and um, employment law, which I had no real <laughs> experience in. But otherwise, it was a good group of people, and I thought it would be interesting, and I'd, and I'd get to engage a lot with sort of insiders at the department, and I went for it, and it turned out great. That's when I met David Margolis. We worked closely when I was in that role, and that led me to kind of do an interim stint as the U.S. attorney in San Francisco, and then to go back to Cal to Washington to work as, as David's understudy. So it was a, it was a sort of a totally unintentional trajectory, but one that got How me to cool. a good place. Um, I'm just always so fascinated by these kinds of stories, especially from someone like you. That you know, you seem very. Um, you seem like a gut-driven guy, but also very opportunistic. Like you see something that opens up and you say, well, maybe I can do that. Or, you know, like you talked about this, um, this employment law thing that you didn't really have a lot of experience in, but like you could kind of zoom out enough to see the bigger picture. And um, I've noticed, you know, I've had a bunch of these kinds of episodes and I have this kind of thing for uh, litigators because I think they have a really interesting skill set. And... Um, you know, they're able to kind of see the big picture, but also the details and make those connections. And then it seems like over time that becomes like a really strong muscle for them and they can flex into both of those. And that, that, that works within a program or with, within an organization. And it also works, it seems to work. Uh, this is just like my, uh, you know, the mosaic that I'm like, uh, you know, looking at a little bit here. It also seems to work in their own career. Do you feel like I'm kind of close to that, your ability to kind of zoom into the details, but also see the big picture enough to drive something forward and be opportunistic when you see kind of what levers might drive, you know, the train forward faster. Yeah, probably so. I think one of the things that happens as a litigator, because every case is different, you end up sort of pivoting from case to case right. and learning a lot that you have to learn to handle a particular case or to go to trial. The facts are different while, while you do sort of learn the techniques of trying cases and improve as you do more of those. Every the fact that you were good right. in the last trial is not going to make you good in this one unless you work hard and you and you learn whatever you need to learn about that case. So I think you feel like you develop the capacity to learn things and to try new things and to understand things in a way that ultimately as a trial lawyer, you're going to have to explain those things to a jury that doesn't know anything about what you're talking about. So I think it does sort of create the muscle to be able to learn new things and to understand them and then explain them to audiences or, or constituencies that you need to talk to. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, I guess I hadn't thought about it that way, but you get good at, at, you get good at getting smart quick. You know, you can get smart on something quickly, but then you do that enough times, you start to get kind of confident that like, well, I can, I'm, sure I'll, I'm sure I'll be able to figure this out. And that in <laughs> itself is like... Uh, that in itself is a muscle that, you know, a lot of people in a lot of other different professions or different tracks don't get to develop for one reason or another, you know? I think that's right. And I did, I mentioned that I had gone to San Francisco to be the U.S. attorney for a year. Well, <clears throat> that was one of those opportunities that it came along very quickly. Yeah. And I thought, sounds, sounds really cool. I was in D.C. I'm like, I'll go out to San Francisco. I'll do this for a while. And then I got on the plane and I thought, we're sending a guy from South Carolina to be the U.S. attorney in San Francisco. There's no way that's going to work. <laughs> it turned out that I had a blast and it, and it was one of the, my best professional years that I've had. But, but, but it took a little bit of something to even not realize that that didn't make any sense, even yeah. though I had agreed to do it. Well, thank goodness you didn't even like think about that until you were on the plane. <laughs> you might not have gotten on the plane, you know. 
That's exactly right. So um, aside from these sort of like, you know, maybe, you know, system one or like almost instinctual skills that you've developed from everything we just kind of talked about, what do you look at, um, you know, now you're in this role, you're back in, you know, the private side, you're not in the public side anymore. Um, what do you draw from the most, do you think? Is it a mentality of like, you know how the DOJ is going to think about things? Is it um, just the sort of like the pedigree that you've been able to develop just, you know, maybe you can't even point to it anymore, you know? Um, what do you think you, what do you think has been like the biggest lessons that you learned from your time on that side of the fence that really allow you to make the impact that you guys have been able to make over the last few years at Uber? Yeah, it's, it's probably a little different than a lot of people would think coming from the Department of Justice, but I think it is to understand how to provide advice in a very practical way uh, and in a way that recognizes the various facets of the particular issue, you know, in a, in a business setting, um, the goal in a business is not to comply. The goal is to, to, to achieve the business objectives that the right. business has. I've always kind of thought of it as we don't exist to comply, we comply to exist. And sort of I've brought that mentality to it, which is sort of the same. I had that same sort of practical approach when I was in the Department of Justice. We could have a discussion about what the right thing to do was in the context of what is it we're trying to achieve? Right. Um, as opposed to it being an isolated issue. And I think it's important in our roles as chief ethics and compliance officers to be able to advise the business in the context of their objectives. And I think actually, I, oddly enough, I learned that I think at the Department of Justice and then brought it here. And I think it helps me to communicate with stakeholders here um, with an understanding that where what the role of compliance is and an understanding of what the business is trying to achieve and how those two things can align and all get us to the same place we want to go. Yeah, because there's this sort of branding issue that, I mean, when you talk about ethics and compliance in the way that you just did, that's very different than this sort of caricature that most people have in their minds about what the compliance department is. It's that we exist to comply. I mean, it's the opposite of what you just said, right? Um, right. Did you encounter some of that you know, caricature thinking in your organization now? And what do you think folks can do beyond just, you know, regurgitating what you just said? What do you think <laughs> they can do to like actually put their kind of words into action, put this sentiment into action within their organization with these other departments whose compliance they need in order to, you know, maintain, uh, you know, the car on the road or whatever? No, I think just like anytime you're trying to, um, create an impression or to have folks understand what your function is, consistency is key. Mm -hmm. So if, if you consistently over time are advising business leaders in a way that I just described so that you understand the business objectives, you're, you're, you're looking at risk realistically, you're not taking the view that my role here today is to tell you what you can and can't do, but to have a discussion with you about how you can do what you want to do or Maybe there are will be occasions where we're going to throw the flag, but for the most part, we're going to try to work towards a solution that, that mitigates risk and, and enhances the possibility of achieving business objectives. If we can do that together. That's but you have to just be consistent with that, because I think a lot of people will who haven't interacted with compliance and ethics professionals before will assume that what's going to happen is 
the compliance folks okay. are going to walk in the room, walk in the room and say, you can't do this or you have to do that. Um, you know, I hadn't thought about that. Um, you know, I was going to, I was thinking about asking like, well, how did ethics and compliance sort of get into this mess? How did the compliance department get into this mess where we have this bad reputation where we're, you know, many folks that, I, that, that we talk to, they're still viewed as a cost, as a cost center. They're not looked at as a profit center. You know, I use the analogy that they feel like they're at the kitty table. They want to get up to the grown folks table where all these, you know, where all the stuff that, you know, is exciting is talked about, but they can't seem to find a place for their seat there and no one's inviting them, them over. Um, and I've sort of thought until literally just now that that's largely due to something that we've done, that we, have, we haven't played our cards right or we, you know, we, we've been like the milk monitor with the whistle. Um, you know, we've been, you know, abusing power or something or putting sort of compliance over, you know, execution of business objectives. But you just said something kind of interesting where you said, you know, this is just what people are going to think about the folks who are defining those rules. Um, where do you think it is on that spectrum? Do you think it's kind of a mix? How and how and do you feel like it might be changing a little bit? Yeah, I can't I can't pretend to be a perfect student of the history of compliance, but I think a lot of it came out of either regulatory requirements yeah. or DOJ expectations. So it's not as if I think a lot of companies thought to themselves, you know what we really need is we need a compliance department. It was essentially foisted on them by the Department of Justice and regulators and financial regulators, health regulators, you name it. Right. So that all of a sudden there was this expectation that companies would needed to create this compliance function. And so it, it arose out of a not necessarily compulsory um, circumstance, but it, but it wasn't as if business leaders woke up one day and decided the, the best way for us to have a consistent culture and to ensure compliance with laws and regulations is to build this department that we don't currently have. Right. So, so I think the, the fact that it wasn't organic probably leads to a lot of the impression that this is something we have to do. The, the role of these people is to monitor our conduct and to regulate what we do. And that's just who they are and we have to do it. And so here they are and we'll make the best of it if we can or, the least of it, if we can. <laughs> right. right. So, <laughs> so. Um, but, you know, if that's what people are expecting, what an opportunity for us to do a pattern interrupt. You know, a pattern interrupt is such a, um, a powerful persuasion mechanism to be more memorable or to leave an impression like you said, make that good first impression. If people are expecting you to be a schlub and you show up in a tuxedo, well, that's a pattern interrupt or vice versa, right? If they're expecting you to be uh, a rules over everything person that, you know, compliance over everything person, what a pattern interrupt it can be if you're coming and talking about their needs or you're talking about how these rules need to fit in the context of these business objectives that we're all actually on the same team, you know, we're all wearing the same uniform, uh, these business objectives that we're all running at. It's a really powerful, slight tweak. Um, and it's really, I think, kind of focuses on kind of focusing on the other person, right? Like, if you can focus on this other person that you're trying to persuade or make an impression on uh, versus your own agenda, there's many times uh, a lot more budget in terms of like their attention or their you know potential compliance, I guess, um, to see where though where there is enough overlap to really run forward. It's just interesting, you know. So I like you know I, I'm super I'm a big nerd on this whole industry. I just think it's at such an interesting uh, time. I think we're moving from this you know industrial economy structure. Uh, into this knowledge work structure where now it's really the the breeding ground for a lot of the ethical like foundations that we've been that have been laid over the last 20 or 30 years as you look forward 
you know, 10, 15 years from now, us, you know, where, how do you think our workplaces will have changed in terms of the role that ethics and compliance plays in terms of how our workplaces, you know, look and feel? It's a, it's a great question. And I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll answer it, but it's not much more than a guess, but I think that, uh, I think that we will continue to be more and more data driven that the, the whole notion of, sort of reporting violations through a helpline to ethics and compliance may become not antiquated, but become a much smaller component of compliance programs that will be doing a lot more data analysis to try to um, obtain information that may predict where things are gonna go, go badly or uh, where things might go badly. And we'll be much more data focused, I think, in how we address the risks within the company than we are today. We get obviously good information from the helplines. From helplines, we uh, we rely on employees to report misconduct, and that's an important part of our programs. But if you think about it, it's a it's a pretty blunt instrument to get information about your company because it's relying on folks to report misconduct who are inherently going to be worried about the consequences of those reports right. to them. So I, I think hopefully over the course of the next ten years. As the as the function matures, uh, this is happening already on the data side. Um, we'll become much more data driven and less reliant on human intel to evaluate our risks and then to understand how to mitigate them. I mean, the proportion of like uh, so. I saw this. I was in a presentation, um, and uh, it was just underscoring that you know uh, the percentage of like fraud detected uh, from people speaking up is like eight to 10 times more than, you know, uh, fraud detection software and all these other, uh, these monitoring, you know, sort, sort of devices. As those devices get better, right, with AI, with, 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 whatever, with, you know, whatever, or even when you can start to find those sort of circumstances for, you know, I don't know, circumstances for fraud, given a couple of sort of, uh, you know, uh, disjointed data points, and you can really start to anticipate that that's going to be a whole new era of, you know, risk mitigation, where to your point, the, the blunt in instrument is not the only tool in, in the toolbox anymore, you know? Yeah, I think over time, it'll be more effective, more efficient and cheaper, probably. So I, I think ultimately, if, if all if it develops right. that way, right, it will actually significantly enhance companies compliance postures because you'll just have better understanding of where your risks are and, and how to go mitigate them. Um, I want to talk a little bit about this shift that we seem to be feeling um, from the DOJ and from others. Everybody's sort of talking about effectiveness, um, the effectiveness of a program. And there's a lot of debate around um, uh, what that means. I don't know if you've uh, heard any, any of these things, but some people, you know, are sort of frustrated by... so it kind of seems to sort of trace back to like, you know, in, um, I'm no lawyer, as you can tell, um, but, you know, the reasonableness standard, you know, in a court of law, you know, would someone find X, Y, or Z sort of reasonable? It's the same kind of, it feels like it's the same kind of a thing, like what's effective? Well, what's effective for your business might not be effective for my business or vice versa. I kind of have comfort in that. I think that that's, uh, you know, reasonable, quote unquote. Um, but where why do you think people have such a difficulty with that that mandate for lack of, of a better term the mandate of like well your job is to build an effective program they're all saying like well what does effective mean i have no idea what that means i think there's 
skepticism, well, I think there's two reasons. One is testing effectiveness is tricky. It's a little hard to know how do you go about doing that. We've, okay. we've conducted training. You can take post-training surveys. In theory, you can send out post-training, you know, six months from now, you can send out a test to the people you've trained and figure out if they still remember what you trained them on. There's some, some techniques you can invoke to sort of test effectiveness, but I'm not sure any of them are perfect. I think culture surveys help um, when you're testing sort of the visibility of your helpline or people's willingness to report. So there's a number of metrics you can look at that give you an indication of effectiveness. So, but again, I think it's all a little imprecise. And I think there's also probably skepticism on the back end that if you actually have uh, an FCPA problem, for example, that your that folks will deem your program effective, no matter what <laughs> all those numbers, yeah, no matter right. what all those numbers I just referenced might show. And so that, you, like, I think I'm a, you're, I'm a little skeptical that if you go in front of the Department of Justice and you say, well, we did all this effectiveness testing, it will help. But it's it's if you had a problem, and it's 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 almost hard to make the case that these numbers show our program was effective when you are now discussing that in the context of an FCPA violation. Yeah, it's like definitionally not effective. <laughs> That's right. Um, so let's jump in our time machine. I don't know if you have your time machine with you, um, but I want to go back in time to a young Scott, and I want you to give him, this is not going to mess up our current timeline, so no worries. I want you to give him some advice that you wish you had earlier. What is something you've learned over the last X amount of years that, man, you think, I wish I really learned that when I was, when I was a younger guy? It's a great question. I think there's kind of two things I would probably think of. One of them is to define your values um, as, as a younger person, to understand sort of, to be able to articulate what it is you stand for and why. And the, the reason I think that is, I think it helps make decisions along your journey so much easier if you have sort of defined values to reference. When I look right. back at my younger life, sort of, I probably had a general concept of how I thought I should live my life and what I thought was important and how I should treat people and all those things. But I didn't really have a defined set of values that when I was gonna make a career choice or a personal decision, that I could look at those values and reference them and think, what decision is consistent with these things that I believe to be important to myself? And I think that would be a, if I could turn back time and tell myself that I would do that, because there's been plenty of times I've struggled with decisions feeling like I don't really know what the frame of reference is. And so I think that's tricky. And then the the second piece I would say is, um, and I I didn't come up with this quote, I read it somewhere, but I think think more about making the choice right instead of making the right choice. So I think a lot of times when you're confronted with it, when I've been confronted with decisions, I really, really sweated what's the right thing to do when really what you need to think about is make a make the decision as well as you can. And then once you've decided it, pour your heart into making that the right decision. Don't be looking back at whatever you what other choice you didn't make or what might have happened if you made a different decision and thinking about how it might have been different if you made a different choice. If you throw yourself into the choice that you actually make. Um, you're probably going to be good and that's going to have, that will be the right choice because you'll have made it right. Not necessarily because you can't, you can't, you can't do the counterfactual and go back and make, right. the, make the other choice and see how that would come out. Um, so focus on making your choice right versus making the right choice. Yeah. Because right. if you focus on the latter, the propensity is always going to be to look in that rear view mirror and live in regret for what may have been. And you can, you know, you can drive yourself crazy thinking about that. Yep. It's kind of that thinking in bets, uh, mentality. It's kind of that poker mentality where it's like, 
I may lose, but as long as I'm making the right bet, then I have to make that bet, you know? I mean, that's right. you know, I could have, you know, kings and go all in and somebody has a 3-8 and, you know, they get the full house and then that's it, you know? Uh, but you have to make, I think that's actually a really free, you know, those, interestingly, uh, both of those frameworks that you just said are very like freeing frameworks. Well, hey, I'm going to sort of build a list of values and let those dictate. And I'm just going to run whatever this decision is through those things. And sort of that first one sort of feeds into the second one, or maybe that second one sort of based on the first one where it's like, okay, well, if I make, if I'm faced with this decision and I run it through my values and I really believe these things, and I think that this is the true hierarchy of how things should work in my life. And that if I follow these things, these are going to pay off in the end, then I can like not, you know, wring my hands in anxiety around, you know, how it ends up turning out, but you can really go full on in that path forward. Because I mean, when, when you start to take your eye off the ball, at least for, for, for myself, I, I'd say I've, I've had the most success when I'm all in ru running at something and I have had like the work, like the most consistent, like failure when I'm like, ah, kind of waffling. And there is some, there is some value in like sort of hitting the beach and burning the boat, so to speak, particularly on a decision that you've made. That's, those are great. I love this question. Cause it's like, you know, I can just soak it up. I mean, it's such a great, uh, such a great, uh, piece of wisdom there. So Scott, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I wish I could say I learned those lessons without going through any pain, but I can't. <laughs> well, if I can learn the lessons by going through your pain, you know, by avoiding your pain, then that's going to be great for me. Okay. <laughs> uh, Scott, this is a lot of fun. I appreciate you hopping on the ethics experts today. Um, you have a, you have a talk coming up at uh, uh, the FCPA conference. Is that right? Mm, no. Did I miss that? Okay. Well, yeah. uh, you must've had one recently, I, in which case I, I heard it was great. I, I did do one recently. Yeah. Thanks. Okay. Very good. Um, where can, where can we see you again? Do you have anything else coming up, uh, down the line? Let's see. I'll be, I'm, I'm attending some compliance conferences in the future. I'm sure I'll see lots of colleagues there. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure I can think of a, a, an imminent public speaking thing, but I'll, I'll be sure to let you know and you can let your folks know if it's going to happen. All right. Very good. Well, uh, great to meet you. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on until next time. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it.